Welcome to the Real-Time Recap, brought to you by the Unity Education Team. My name is Thomas Winkley, and I'll be your host. Each episode, we're going to be bringing you highlights talking about the news, community efforts, and future of technology to keep all of you tied into the future of Real-Time 3D. You can find a link to our Unity Facebook community and Discord in the show notes. Also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast to get the updates every time we release an episode. And if you have a colleague that you know would love to jump into the world of real-time 3D or is already there, send this their way. AI, or artificial intelligence, has been a hot topic as of late. There is so much to learn and so much to understand when it comes to AI that I thought it would be good to give ourselves a starting point so we can begin to explore how this could impact the technology that we work with every day. In this episode, we're going to talk to two AI experts, Joel Sadler and Michael Runningwolf. Both these men have been working with AI for quite a long time and are using it for some pretty powerful and impressive projects. Without further ado, let's get these two gentlemen rolling and talk about what's going on in the world of AI. So we're here with episode four of the Real Time Recap. It's exciting, it's fun, and we wanted to try to tackle AI this time. But um, as a lot of our community knows, I'm not an AI expert. Um, at times, I'm barely a programming expert, depending on the day. So I brought some guests along that I think are way more knowledgeable. Um, so we've got uh, Joel Sadler and Michael Runningwolf with us. How y'all doing? Doing great. Great, great, thanks. Yeah, awesome. So glad to have you two here. Again, thank you for the time. Um, I think if it's okay, we'll start. Joel, why don't you introduce yourself and kind of your background, and then we'll go to Michael after that. Awesome, thanks, Thomas. Joel Sadler yeah. here. Uh, so I teach at Stanford University on you know using things like VR and AR uh, and AI together for enhancing teaching, uh, and I also do sort of ed tech uh, entrepreneurship. Have uh, some companies out there in the field sort of pushing the the limits on sort of using these techniques to sort of teach students in the classroom about those creative skills. Um, yeah. And Michael, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I am a PhD student in computer science, but I am a former Amazonian. I used to work in industry, other companies before that. I also was faculty at Northeastern University for a while. Um, when I there, I realized I need to get a PhD and I am pursuing in my research building uh, XR apps for language reclamation for indigenous languages in North America. <clears throat> and that is using basically XR as a primary interface where you interact with a voice AI to get uh, educational content. That's so cool. Like the, the applications I think are so broad for this, right? And I love the idea of like immersive learning, especially for reclaiming native languages and all the ed tech work you're doing, Joel. Um, I guess we can, I guess we can jump uh, right into the first kind of question. Um, We've talked a little bit about the work you've done with AI, um, but either one of you is welcome to go first. But like, uh, I think Michael, you give a pretty good rundown. But like, how else do you hope to utilize like AI with the work you're doing, and what is some other in depth of the work you're doing? Yeah, from from a broad perspective, I think AI is very useful for language education yeah. because uh, I used to work at Amazon Alexa, and when I was there, I worked on the privacy side, but I became very familiar with the overall infrastructure, and and I thought to myself why can't we do this for indigenous languages? And that kind of kicked out my start, starting off my career path of pivoting my career toward machine learning and also using languages for uh, language AI and machine learning research. And the, there's some really interesting side effects of VR, like even just training 
really rudimentary language education in VR is unreasonably good. And there's probably some, I'm not a cognitive um, psychologist or anything like that, but how you measure education and, and language education is retention. So if you taught something, you know, like I recently I took a French class because I'm going to school in Montreal, my PhD is in Montreal. And when you repeat it, and that's really important, um, and you go through the standard curricula, and this research has shown that if you go through the same curricula, but in VR, nothing fancy, just really simple Unity assets from the asset store. I've, I've tried some of these experiences. And if you just see a rotating fish and you see it and you hear the French word, you know, poisson, um, I'm saying that wrong, by the way, just not even very engaging, just on a goofy little pedestal rotating poisson. And you hear that students, as I remember, have higher retention. And I want to leverage that effect for indigenous languages, because I think it's particularly important to maximize as much educational, you know, throw as much tech and as much uh, pedagogy, sound pedagogy to it. So it's what is an urgent task um, in North America, indigenous languages about in the United States alone, about 92% of the languages are near extinction um, as measured by the UNESCO. Yeah, uh, really cool way to kind of work that. I didn't know that. I mean, we have a lot of stats about, you know, virtual reality in general, about how retention is so much higher. But from a language perspective, that's so cool to think about, too, because I remember in college them being like, well, if you want to learn a language, go live in the culture. Right. And you'll have to learn the language. Right. And this is almost a, a step away from that. As I said, having to uproot yourself and go completely somewhere else, you can put a headset on and transport yourself. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's it's basically that. I my theory again. I'm not a, don't take this with a grain of salt. I'm a computer scientist, not a cognitive psychologist. Sure. <laughs> I think it's mimicking immersion. Like if you want to learn German, go to Bavaria. Go go get a Stein of you know lager and uh, immerse yourself in German uh, or in French. You know, eat a baguette. You know, drink a coffee in, in the shadow of um, a mantra or something and there's just something about that, but it's much more, that's the best way to learn. But obviously not everyone can do that. And it's also similar with Native Americans. Most of us live away from our language communities for various reasons, you know, work or, you know, life that moves us. And so they don't really have easy access to fluent speakers. And VR, I think, is a good distance learning. And number two has the side effect of being unreasonably good at teaching uh, education in general, but also particularly languages. Yeah, I, I agree. Joel, how about you? Like what, I mean, you've mentioned some of the work you've done, of course, but like, how do you hope to utilize like AI and all this information available to us to drive some of that forward? Yeah. I mean, I, as a little bit of background, I love this discussion on language because my, my entryway into using large language models was actually speaking Patwa to chat GPT in the early days. And, you know, Pat, Jamaican Patwa, I grew up there most of my, most of my life until studying, you know, in the U S and I was really surprised, um, to see, yeah, basically it's fluent in understanding and generating Patua. And, uh, uh, and that sort of was an early clue that we had gotten to a certain point in what I call sort of the, the, the holodeck moment. Um, so, you know, growing up in Jamaica, I had Star Trek um, and uh, watched The Matrix. And so, you know, this idea of a holodeck where you sort of imagine something and then you have this multi-sensory visual, audio, tactile, haptic uh, experience that could sort of be anything was sort of the, the stuff I grew up on on the, you know, 
two television channels that that we had. Um, and I think, you know, what Michael is getting at with some of the work of using VR, for example, for language learning, this is exactly what you need if you want to learn a complex skill. So in the movie, The Matrix, where Neo sort of plugs in and sort of learns Kung Fu on the fly, these are the things that sort of inspired me as a kid. Uh, combine that with playing awesome video games, like the adventure game genre was what I grew up on. And uh, LucasArts uh, games like Monkey Island and Full Throttle were some of my favorites. Um, so oh yeah, and Sim City, which you know in the early '80s uh, was really you know from a kid coming from a tiny island, you get this feeling. All of these things combined that well, what's coming in the future are sort of like the Sim Cities on steroids as the 3D was was starting to come in, right? Doom and Wolfenstein 3D and Quake, and then a multiplayer and the internet came out and I remember playing many hours of Counter-Strike, you could really start to see that the future of, of sort of experiencing things was going to be this um, closer to that holodeck. And, you know, we fast forward to where we are now with the work with Stanford, essentially taking things like large language models, taking um, real-time 3D engines running on immersive platforms or on desktop or on mobile, whatever computing device you're on, we can put a student uh in any learning environment that that we want so that's sort of like the insight the holodeck insight um so what we started doing you know when the pandemic hit uh and we could not go into physical classrooms <laughs> this was a shining moment to sort of put it all together uh and uh we started doing completely remote classrooms right multiplayer uh you know immersive if you were on a uh, laptop, you join on a laptop, you're on a mobile phone, you're on a mobile phone or a VR headset. Quest 2s is what we rolled out with. And uh, no matter where you were, we ship headsets uh, to um, students in remote parts of Kenya. We ship you know, headsets to high school students, uh, to the medical school, and we just got everyone together. So that was like a, a proof of concept early on in the pandemic that we could get anyone anywhere in a holodeck-like thing. Um, and so that early work sort of convinced me, well, we're getting so much closer, uh, to this idea, uh, of, of these learning environments. And so now what we're focused on is taking that to the next level, uh, taking sort of the frontier of machine learning, artificial intelligence, large language models, generative AI, these frontier pieces that add more interactivity, that add more intelligence, that add rich richness to the simulation in that learning environment. And uh, we could talk more about the specifics, but I think the idea is supercharging those real-time 3D environments with this cutting edge power of uh, anything you imagine you can sort of create without needing to be an expert in uh, programming, for example. That was sort of the, the big barrier. Yeah, I, I love that too, right? Without having to be an expert in programming. Because I think like, you know, something we really strive for as a team here at Unity is democratizing this work, right? So that anybody can sit down and start building these experiences, right? So the XR Interaction Toolkit is basically code-free and you can build these experiences. You know, you look at visual code now, or yeah, visual scripting as part of our toolkit, right? So you can start building that stuff. So it's cool that now AI can be leveraged to help push that. Um, I guess, I don't want to go too deep into technical, but you did, you both have brought up a couple different AI concepts that I think would be important that we touch on for base understanding. You know, we've talked about natural language processing a bit, which I think is the most common, right? Like everyone's really familiar with that because that's pretty much what ChatGPT, Bard, and all these other things are built upon. 
Um, but what are other types of AI that you two both are familiar with and comfortable with, um, aside from natural language processing? I think NLP and Joel would agree is kind of a blanket term for a lot of different technologies. Uh, like in ChatGPT is a good example of a natural language understanding system. Um, it's obviously much worse than that simple term. Um, and it's a chatbot basically, which is right. a family of technologies. And that's textual, usually textual. Obviously, it's easy to wire up like an audio recognizer and that plugs into ChatGPT. And I've seen examples of that. And that's where I am on that sec sector. So with indigenous languages, my particular research is focused upon how do we do speech to text? Because it's, it's, it's difficult. It's not impossible. It's just particularly difficult um, to use raw audio. You know, right. it's possible, but there's a reason why we've created this general broad family of technology called automatic speech recognition, uh, ASR, or it's also speech to text. And for me, that's particularly important because what I want, like earlier, I said I want educational experiences in XR. I want them to be practicing the language, uh, practicing Lakota, practicing Sashayan, and saying these words and practicing them in a safe environment. And that really requires uh, automatic speech recognition, which unfortunately, a little bit fortunate for my PhD, is green space research. There's not been there's been very little research broadly into indigenous languages and machine learning, and there's been very little like there might be only one example of a paper where anyone has actually tried automatic speech recognition for any languages in North America, uh, and that's like where I'm at, and which is it's in the broad family of natural language processing, but it's a big space. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. You know, there's what's interesting about uh, the term AI is it's so broad and right. um, yeah. And, and actually there, there's a lot of other interesting stuff besides natural language understanding and a chat GPT. Um, you know, what, what sort of gripped me, you know, when I sort of in between startups went back to school did and did a PhD on what I called um, the anatomy of creative computing, right? Because uh, I felt like that was the most important um, superpower that we could, you know, leave kids with. It's sort of like feeling confident to create is really the the, the end goal. But, um, totally. And growing up with games, like if we look generally at AI, actually the, the idea of agent-based systems and the idea of intelligent systems that sort of know what is going on with the user in the world. Uh, you know, this is like gamers can understand like the game knows what you're doing and how you're progressing. Um, and so early on, after I finished my PhD, I co-founded a company called Piper Learning and we tested this idea of like, well, what if we could put a teacher in a box? Uh, Raspberry Pi was sort of blowing up at the time. And uh, Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite uh, in full swing. So we put Minecraft in a box and a Raspberry Pi in a physical kit that kids had to build. Uh, and, you know, while we didn't call it AI at the time, I think one of the most important parts was that once the, the child, the middle schooler, had built the kit, turned it on and it booted up into Minecraft, we put these animated characters that would show up on the screen and continue to say, hey, you built the computer. Let me show you how to make uh a game controller it's, so you can move around because you you know you start out on a base in mars you can't move around and and the students are wondering well, what's next and so the guidance on the screen uh you know we essentially hypothesized that we could 
we could sh teach students anything, any complex topic, all the way through, you know, learning to code was sort of the, the idea and aligning with that at that time. Um, and we could actually measure and see what the students were doing. You know, the Raspberry Pis, GPIO pins were exposed. This is a raw circuit board in all of its glory. And then the screen would say, well, plug these wires in here and here. And we would wait and we would detect when the students would uh, wire it. And we could we could tell that they had succeeded and then you would move forward. And that was sort of a magic moment. Um, so I think there's like this general idea of an agent that's aware of what you're doing. That's like a really important idea from, um, you know, the artificial intelligence community. This is besides, you know, the topics around machine learning and the use of uh, natural language that, that that's been pretty powerful. I think the other piece that's really exciting um, that I work on these days, you, you know, Thomas, you mentioned visual scripting and Unity has a powerful Bolt system. Uh, you know, what I realized early on was that for this, these learning experiences to scale, what we have to do is empower technical novices or beginning in their programming path to create these environments, not, yeah. not just relying on someone like me to sort of make some excellent content in, in something like Unity. Um, and so co-founded with some friends of mine, another company called PatchXR that's currently um, has a, a title called Patch World, where it looks like fun and games. It's a musical sort of theme. You come in and create musical instruments and play music together. Uh, but under the hood is a visual scripting environment. Now with the difference being it's in 3D. Uh, and it's much like what musicians might do in something like Pure Data or Max MSP and these real-time audio synthesis environments, but designed so that a beginner could come in, have that sort of first-time experience. Uh, so you know, again, we sort of see that inside of we know and can measure in VR and AR uh, what users are doing. Are they like hitting a you know virtual drum? Are they confused about how to wire something from one place to the other? And we can gently have these characters that are essentially NPCs, non-player characters that we we record. So we come in, we record agents, and then essentially with a sort of uh, awareness of what you know what the user is doing we can sort of tailor and, and guide a player from beginning to sort of making something complex uh, so it's artificial intelligence from a different point of view that i think really aligns with you know what researchers in agent-based uh, uh or, or using npcs and games to teach that i think is is very suggestive of the future of these systems chat GPT cannot reach out currently into your world and change anything. And that's right. something we'll, we'll see a trend uh, towards as these systems become more commonplace. That's the really exciting ground that I think educators have a strong role to play, which is, you know, when your AI can do anything in a real-time 3D environment, uh, how do we uh, harness that for a learning objective? Yeah. No, I love that. And I, I love the focus on learning too. Because so one thing that I, I've done enough research and worked with enough tools to really understand, for me to have the opinion that like, it's incredible, it's powerful, there's something there. But if you don't know what you're trying to get out of it, it is not very helpful. <laughs> right? Like, and I think that that bridge you're talking about is really important of like, how do we make it super helpful for everybody? Um, you know, in all in all situations. Um, I guess the next thing we, I'd want to know or ask you about, and of course, you're welcome to share any other topics you want to but what like as you're diving further into these worlds, as you're researching, as you're engaging with people, what are the pitfalls that you're seeing um, or concerns that you might have or see for the future of kind of what's going on here? Um, I have a lot of concerns. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. 
Well, okay, let's start with the start of the positive, and I'll try to end on the positive note. But I think, like, I agree with Joel. I think it's you're already seeing early works of this idea of the metaverse, the the the, the real metaverse that uh, that was brought up in Snow Crash, um, where whose author I kind of totally forgot. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Neil, Neil, Stevenson. Um, Neil Stevenson, yeah, like the real Snow Crash, or we're going to have automatically generated content for users based upon either prompts or low code, uh, as Joel was talking about, low code to no code. And you're starting to see the edges of that. Like there's an open source project called Dream Texture, which I've been playing around with, which was you create some 3D objects in Blender and you write in a prompt, like you can put some boxes and say it's a trash can and it'll texture it, you know, do some limited depth mapping and texture the object as a trash can. And imagine being able to do that just by voice, be walking into a blank, you know, hollow deck space, put on your headset and you say, show me uh, Paris, you know, in the spring with with a whale flying across, you know, and being that, that I think that's doable right. with I'm betting we're probably no more than two to five years from that reality. Uh, it's going to obviously there's going to be hindrances. But then that raises the next problem. If you have AI that can practically do anything at request, drawn upon the wealth of it, these AI has scanned the internet. Right. There's two issues there. Number one, it's the internet. It's there's going to be a lot of trash. It's basically, are you going to allow right. a five-year-old or a thirteen-year-old to be on a headset and ask for anything? Like, what if they ask for something inappropriate? What, what kind of blocks? Right. And as we all know, ChatGPT does put blocks on, but it's every, how long does it take? Like 15 minutes before someone finds a, um, right. uh, a prompt that breaks ChatGPT. This is going to be a problem because now you potentially have youth being able to create inappropriate experiences, which could, as everyone on this call knows, the in VR can give you PTSD if you're shown really graphic experiences. And so there's a very real possibility that you know, we have to put guardrails, obviously. There's yeah. going to be some sort of, maybe you're only allowed to ask for certain things. Maybe, you know, whatever. There's going to be some sort of moderation going on there. Um, and the other issue is the source of that data. You know, we're scanning the internet. One problem with these generative AIs that I have is that we're not given artist attribution. You know, you're able to go in there and say, right. create me a Picasso night sky on stable diffusion or Dolly or any other open source model. And the the artists aren't being compensated. Like this is yeah. if if you're in if your work is on the internet, you know copyright's a thing. Uh, I know there are those who are just you know free everything. I'm not of that opinion because this does affect minority groups. Like whether if you're a struggling artist, sure. And suddenly the AI can generate. Whether if you're a struggling 3D artist who creates these magical worlds, and you're selling them on the marketplace, the Unity marketplace. But then someone can come along with some basic tools like Blender, recreate it in the style of, and just dump it all into the to the marketplace, the Unity marketplace. I think that's going to have to require some future thought and policies of AI-generated assets in either marketplace. You know, either be it Squid. I think is that still a thing? You know. In, oh yeah, uh, like TurboSquid or TurboSquid. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 What do we do? What's the because the it's there's going there's some a lot of policy issues here that intersect. But that is to say, 
I think there's amazing potential. I think we're at we're. I feel like the XR people say this every year, <laughs> but I think I think we're actually really close to a really engaging metaverse that was envisioned, you know, of your, you know, or even just um, Gibson's book, you know, the these the, the, these books about being fully immersed in XR environment, and I think William Gibson's work, early work, um, but yeah, I think I think we're close, but we're going to have to put on some guardrails too. I agree. Yeah, I think the ethics concerns are very real. Um, and like, whenever I get asked that when I'm doing like a presentation or workshop for you, someone's like, "Well, what do you think about this?" And it's it's always high school kids that ask the really like cutting ethics questions. And my answer is always like, "It needs to be figured out. I'm not the smart enough guy to do it." Like that, but right. But we definitely need something to make sure that those things are in place. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, um, Joel. What do you think? Pitfalls? Cool stuff? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, I can give a shout out to some of the pitfalls and especially what educators can can do about it, specifically with generative AI. Um, you know, let's say someone came up to you and gave you a magic power that says, well, now you have the power. Let's say it's a lad and you rub this lamp. Anything you imagine can now exist. That's sort of the reality. We're getting so much closer to that reality. Um, now, and that's actually the first line in my thesis was, can anyone make anything? You know, my whole thing was trying to prove that, like, we're basically there where the barriers to entry are um, at that point where, you know, if you can imagine it, you can pretty much build it. Um, you know, at that time, 3D printing was having its its um, heyday. And there were similar discussions there of this idea of, well, you know, if you can sort of model it, you know, you can create anything, which which also means you could create bad things, right? Um, things that could harm others. And it could also mean, like in my case, 3D printing medical devices, saving lives. Uh, and I think that's where the role of educators shine to help um, guide students towards the response. This is a Spider-Man insight, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. That is, I think, you know, an emerging sort of the most important emerging sort of topic, not math and English skills or language skills, for example. It's the role of teachers in, you know, creating well-rounded students who are creators that want to create responsible things that advance, you know, our society. Yeah. Um, so I think the power is going to be there. We're going to have these, these problems on the flip side of the bad use. And I think educators' role can really shape, you know, uh, the ethics, uh, especially as we think about students as designers, as creators of solutions. Um, and so I think in a sort of K through 12 system, the sort of use of projects, project-based learning and design thinking methodology to really ingrain in students early on, hey, you, you actually have, let's just start with the assumption you can make anything and here are things that we think are valuable, how, how we can go about problem solving. So I'm very hopeful about educators stepping up to the plate on that realm. Um, you know, there's uh, issues that Michael bring up of, you know, the downstream issues of copyright. If you can make anything, how do we deal with intellectual property, copyright, um, you know, these sort of issues. I'm, I'm not as worried about that, you know, I think the most yet, because I think it's more, more important that we sort of have a pipeline of creators who are the, the next generation. Um, you know, I, I was trained as a product designer, you know, started with mechanical engineering and, you know, uh, then going into computer science and things like this. Um, and so I think the high schoolers who are growing up now, you know, they're going to, they're already starting from, you know, such a point that, you know, it took me 
15 years, right, to get as fluent as I, as I was with the product design tools, they're, they're essentially starting right from where I am right now. You know, the playing field is level. Uh, so, I, yeah, I do really want to stress that, you know, the role of educators now are more as design facilitators. Um, you know, I, the second piece that's super salient for education, especially large language models and chat, chat GPT and things like this, is the role of sort of accuracy. These models are notoriously uh, difficult to, to get reliable output, the so-called hallucination from, from text models or even literally something like stable diffusion, mid-journey, these sort of visual generative models, they're, they're great at hallucinating fantastic visuals. Uh, as a side story, when I showed ChatGPT to the, the head of the anatomy department at Stanford, you know, he immediately was like, well, let's, let's ask it to generate an anatomically accurate upper limb, which it proceeded to generate the most grotesque, which turns out that's one of the, the hardest, you know, he just went straight to it, you know, <laughs> it, it has a very hard time with fingers, with generating ground truth, and it, it just produced a monstrosity. So that was like an early lesson of like a not so well matched use of the, it, the, the technology. It whipped you up a Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we, we actually took that experience and um, have some support from uh, the Stanford Learning Institute and OpenAI and uh, the HAI group, human, human AI group at Stanford, basically to show best practices now. How do, how, as educators, how do we sort of um, deal with ground truth with large language models? And, you know, we could go into more detail about like some of the strategies, but early things we're learning uh, is that it is a tractable problem you know, if you tell large language models, for example, please, if you're not sure about what you're saying, please just say so, you know, these, these, uh, these things make a difference. The large language model has a measure of confidence on every token it generates. Um, so we, we have a level of control even at that level. Um, and then with, uh, further fine tuning and some of what Michael alluded to with the guardrails, like the sort of safety features that, I think OpenAI, for example, um, has a whole suite of tools that if you try and say something sort of pointed or that's not not considered to be safe, you know, it's going to automatically trigger uh, uh, a sort of, hey, that's not something I can discuss. Um, and so these safeties are becoming an important part as, as educators. So I think getting a handle of well, what's the state of the art and a good a good sort of first pass is to use the stuff that is on the cutting edge, like OpenAI's moderation features that will automatically filter out things that they have determined uh, don't meet the, the sort of safety guidelines. Um, and then I think, you know, moving forward, it has to be a bigger conversation than, you know, a few companies sort of controlling the narrative. And I think that's, again, where educators have, a, have some of the strongest potential voice in the room as experts on um, you know, safely, you know, teaching students. Yeah, I love that. I, I couldn't agree more with both, with both both of you said, right? It's it's a massive area that we have to think about. Um, I guess as the final kind of piece for this, cause I, you know, we had another thing we wanted to discuss on there is, you know, what, I think it was literally like what, what importance are for what topics are important for students and educators, but we kind of covered that throughout the entire conversation. Um, so if, if, if an educator is listening to this or anyone's listening to this and they really want to learn and dive into the world of AI, whether it be NLP, generative AI, whatever, 
where would you tell them to start? Like, where could they start to learn? I mean, aside from just trying the tools, right, and getting experience with them, what are other things they could do to learn? Well, they should definitely try the tools. Um, yes. <laughs> you'd be surprised. Uh, and even deeper, I mean, Chad GPT, of course, uh, uh, I meet very few people who haven't spoken with it, but specifically, you know, the you know, their pro version and, and seeing what's on the bleeding edge is, is sort of essential in my uh, opinion. Uh, you know, some of these issues, they're well aware, you know, at the bleeding edge, um, sort of turning on the, the like, all the features of, let's say, chat GPT, um, using the browsing plugins that just recently introduced that that's starting to show the value of like large language models that have access to the internet also in a safe fashion. Um, I think going a little deeper, actually going to the platform level, the playground, so to speak, this is at a, a code level, engaging with technical teams to, um, you know, go under the hood, not just the consumer facing version, which is chat GPT. And that what we do from a research perspective is work directly with the SDK um, and plug those into things like real time 3D environments. Uh, I think from a sort of learning perspective, the good news is everyone's sort of learning together, you know, because right. this is a new space. So I personally, you know, I took AI courses like sort of 15 years ago. <laughs> it's already out of date sure. uh, and machine learning. And, you know, it was nothing like what what you do if you start today. So uh, the online free resources like at Coursera um, in particular, Andrew Ng's courses, I've found quite helpful to get up to speed. These okay. are courses starting from AI for everyone, which is, you know, sort of open to any sort of background. Um, I'd recommend sort of looking at what's available in those like learning paths to level up. If you're sort of more technical, you could go down a specialization also for free in machine learning. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do, I do find those res resources helpful even for me, uh, yeah. to, to stay on the cutting edge. Yeah. And I think I have to, uh... Yeah, so I would say one of the best machine learning introductories, I think educators will need to just teach themselves. Obviously, you're not going to become a practitioner, but I would say look at, you know, Stanford's machine learning course, which is, of course, um, Andrew Ning. And there's also sort of the industry standard for if you're more technical would be fast AI. Um, this what if you just Google fast AI, you can find um, the curriculum online and it's pretty comprehensive. It'll get you up to speed with the basics. Obviously, it's not going to make you an expert. Um, and I think for educators, you should start thinking about how do you introduce AI to your students as quickly as possible? Like um, I'm putting a little plug in right now. I'm in the middle of the Lakota AI code camp where I'm working sponsored by um, McGovern Foundation and Meta, where we're teaching Lakota students in South Dakota how to do AI. We're you know supplying them with the capacity to do so, basic training, and I think that's really critical. I think, and the real restriction to our program is we just don't have enough teachers. We don't have enough. We don't need practitioners like Joel or super geniuses. You know, we just need people who are conversant in what's going on and able to kind of follow along and support students. So I think it behooves teachers who have an interest to start looking at these online coursework, like, you know, Andrew Ning's course or the fast AI course. There's a ton, you know, I, I think you can't really go wrong. I think and start with Andrew or start with fast AI, but I think it behooves you as educators to start 
integrate in some concepts into your classes because AI is going to affect everything. If you're an art teacher, a musician, uh, math, obviously, computer science, science, AI, there's an AI research going on for practically every domain with the exception of course is indigenous NLP, <laughs> of course, long tail stuff like that. Um, but it's going to affect the entire economy. And I think teachers should at least be conversant about how this is uh, going to affect their students and themselves and their career. And as a quick tip, if, uh, if anybody's struggling with getting started, it turns out that if you just talk to GPT and ask questions, I'm doing that daily to actually level yeah. up my, my own, uh, sort of AI creation. Um, so that superpower is a wonderful way. Uh, you'd be surprised how far you can get just using that tool as an, as an on-demand sort of tutor to get you yeah. strapped into it. It's actually, with it's the really caveat though, with the caveat though, that sometimes if you ask complex questions, it's not going to yeah, you know, trust, uh, trust, but verify. <laughs> with yeah, of course, I think with anything, any, any, you know, anytime you're doing internet research, even if it's a, an AI and, or just, you know, a standard search prompt, you should always verify <laughs> what you get info from. Um, yeah. well, cool. I think, I mean, that pretty much covered everything I wanted to, or I thought we thought, I thought, I don't know. I don't know why my brain just shut down mid sentence, but, uh, I think that covered what we wanted to dive into for kind of starting an AI and we'll put all the links and topics you discussed, like fast AI, AI for everyone. We'll put some links to that in the show notes as well. So y'all can check that out. Um, I guess any final thoughts or things you'd want to share with uh, our community before we wrap up and call it a day? I guess I'd just encourage everyone. Uh, this is a fast emerging field for everyone. And yeah. if anything I learned about, you know, sort of, Diving into something that has some technical barriers, uh, I, I can say it's really uh, not as hard as it seems at first. And so, with some persistence and concrete projects that you're passionate about, you know, I'm, I, you know, I really encourage and say, you know, the educators are the ones who are are going to be showing the real value of, uh, of of AI in society. So I, you know, highly encourage everyone to dive in and uh, excited to see what you come up with. Yeah. And yeah, plus one, I think don't feel shy. If you feel like you've been left behind, everyone's left behind. Like I took machine learning 20 years ago. I think I'm a bit older than Joel. <laughs> and, and that is completely out of date. It's foundational, obviously. But sure. I think if you start today or even tomorrow, it's the, the space is changing so quickly that it is almost irrelevant that you don't have prior experience. This is a very fast moving field and this is a good time to learn. Don't feel shy that you don't know anything yet. Now is a good time as with education. Now is a good time to start learning. <laughs> Always is, right? Thank you both so, so much uh, for taking the time. I understand you're both incredibly busy uh, driving all these things forward. So thank you for just hanging out with us for a little bit. Um, if you want to connect with them at all, again, we'll put their social media info and all that in the show notes um, in their bios. But Really appreciate you taking the time and hopefully we get around to each other in person soon. So cool. thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to the real time recap, the Unity education teams podcast about what's going on in industry and your link to finding more resources to teaching the world of real time 3d. If you have questions, comments, concerns, want to discuss the topic, send an email to RT recap at unity3d.com. Make sure to review and subscribe and we'll see you next time.